Good morning. Good morning. All right, that's good, that's good. Uh, so I am extremely excited to be here this morning and very, very grateful to be one of the new deacons of this church. I love this church. Um, since I'm a new face to many of you in the room, how about I start by telling you a little bit about myself, and then I'll actually tell you about a time where I felt like a total and complete failure. Sounds like a fun way to introduce yourself to a large room of new people, right? Okay, so here we go. Uh, very high level, I was born and raised in the Midwest. Uh, do we have any other Midwesterners here? Awesome, okay. I like you guys already, so. Um, as far as what I do for work, I founded and am the primary financial planner for a financial planning practice. Uh, we have offices here in New York City and also in Ohio, clients around the country. I love what I do, and I'm extremely fortunate to love what I do. Um, but those two questions are often some of the first things we ask somebody new when we meet them for the first time, aren't they? But I am so much more than what I do for a living to earn an income, aren't I? Aren't you? Yep. So what else, what else? Well, I was recently engaged to someone who is a much better person than I am and is here today. Uh, as far as what I like, some of the hobbies that I like, I like to paint. Um, ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to paint. And about three years ago, I decided, what the heck? There's never going to be a better time. So I bought some supplies and went for it. And I absolutely love it. I don't get to do it enough. For whatever reason, I like oil painting landscapes. Think of Bob Ross, okay? So <laughs> I don't know why, I just do. Uh, I also like to read a lot. I read, I try to read every single day for at least a few minutes. Um, this year I have a goal of reading 25 books. And as of last night, I'm now done with book number six, so I'm making some progress towards that. Uh, I like to travel. My family is no longer in Ohio. Half of them moved to Dallas, half of them are in Connecticut. And um, in Connecticut, I have three of the most adorable little nieces in the world. I absolutely can't get enough of them. They're actually the background on my iPhone. I just can't get enough of them. So now you know me. Let's go home. <laughs> All right. Um, so during my personal journey, uh, there have been ups and downs and good times and bads. And through these, my faith came to hold a very, very special place in my heart. Now, I don't know why. We all know people, and some of us here today are even possibly some of those people, who, for whatever reason, the challenges that they encountered, stuff that happened in their life, caused them to question their faith or flat out just say, I want nothing to do with it. I experienced some of those same challenges myself. And I don't know why, but I am extremely thankful that, for some reason, God clung on and I clung on to my faith. That's what got me through. I don't know why I went that way and other people go another, but I'm thankful that I did. So much so that I finished my undergraduate degree in business and finance and ended up attending seminary. I wanted to go into church planting, and I actually had a vision of planting a church in either New York City or one other major metropolitan area. Well, I finished my MDiv, and decided for various reasons that vocational, it was not the right time for me to go into a vocational ministry. And I think God honored that decision for the reasons that I made it. Uh, the right doors and opportunities opened, I got back into finance, I started my own business, and then here I am in New York City, a new deacon of a wonderful, fast-growing and vibrant church, and 
it's awesome. It's what I had envisioned, just in a better way. Now, while I was in seminary, <clears throat> I interned briefly at a large church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where I went to school. And this church had a couple of thousand members, and it's a, uh, affiliated. It's in the same network of churches that started this church. Some of you would probably know the name of the church if I mentioned it, so I'm not, I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, there, I led a weekly devotional in the time of the service leading up to communion. I had three minutes a week in the main services, and I absolutely loved it. I poured my heart and my soul and my energy into this. I just loved it. It was my first opportunity to work in front of a congregation and really help them connect spiritually um, and reflect on the message leading into communion. It also provided a small stipend, which most internships don't. And that helped me cover some basic living expenses. Uh, I mean, we're talking about college living here. So like I got to buy some pop and ramen noodles from the grocery store, okay? So <laughs> it wasn't a lot, but it was enough to help. At one point during my internship, I hadn't yet received the stipend for that month. It was late. And I was in the church that day. Um, I don't remember why, but I was there, and I wanted to ask the senior minister about it. He was the individual who actually handled the stipend directly with me. He was in a meeting, and his schedule was absolutely packed that day, and I didn't want to interrupt him or bother him. So I asked his executive assistant to check on the stipend for me. About three hours later, I received an extremely, extremely angry email from that executive pastor. It was, it was bad. Now, I had gone to his assistant out of an attempt to respect his time and avoid interrupting his day. In hindsight, there was a better way for me to have approached that. He had misinterpreted my actions as an attempt to actually go behind his back. Not fair and not right. But I found my integrity and my motives, and even my worthiness to serve even another Sunday in that church brought into question and attacked in that email. It hurt. It, it, it still hurts. And before today, I have not spoken with more than five people about that in the last 14 years. It was one of those things that really just pierced me through. Now, I don't know what was going on with him or where he was coming from that day. That email was absolutely more about him than it was me, and I know that. When I received it, I immediately apologized and explained my intentions and what I was trying to do and not try to do. Uh, he apologized, and I accepted his apology. It was a complete misunderstanding. But the damage had been done. Uh, I felt utterly accused, unfairly disrespected, and worst of all, despite how hard I tried to do a good job, I felt like a total and complete failure. I was crushed. Can any of you identify with those feelings? Failure is a tough thing to overcome. Failure penetrates deep. And all too often, we can allow it to define us. Life is going to have good times and bads, 
ups and downs, successes and failures. We all know that. We're taught that as kids. What we're not taught by our parents in society is that the good times and the bad both happen at the same time. They're all mixed together. If you're like me, there are some really great things going on in your life this morning, at this time. And there are probably some also less than great things going on in your life too. Some of those may even be of our own doing. We have all failed, every one of us in this room, and we will all fail again. So, how do we avoid failure from defining us? Now this week, we're actually gonna take some time and look at two of the disciples, Peter and Judas, and at the very different paths that their stories take. Now, there is a lot that we can say about these two men. We're not gonna spend a lot of time on a lot of their content. We could spend weeks talking about each of them. We're gonna focus on a very narrow portion of their stories today, okay? So that involves, we're gonna be skipping through uh, some scripture to stay focused on the point. But let's start out by getting to know kind of uh, these two men, just on a high level. First of all, both followed Jesus. Both were disciples. Both men lived with Jesus and the other 10 disciples for three entire years. They shared everything together. They ate together, they laughed together, they celebrated together, they probably even cried together. These men were all extremely close. Both Peter and Judas failed miserably in their stories. Judas betrayed Jesus and his fellow disciples. Peter betrayed his closest friend, Jesus, by denying he even knew him repeatedly. Both men betrayed Jesus. Now, one of these men went on to become a leader in the early church and greatly spread Jesus' message. Do we have anybody here who grew up in the Catholic Church? All right. Who was the first leader of the Catholic Church? We have the Pope today. Who was the first leader? Peter. Peter is a man who went on to be a leader that we talk about and know today. Now, for us Protestants, he wrote letters later in his life that are actually books in our New Testament. The other man took his own life. His story ended. Why such a different outcome? Well, I believe that scripture teaches it is not because of what these men did to fail, but rather what happened after they had failed that leads to these different outcomes. Later in the service, we will celebrate the Last Supper by taking communion. And the Last Supper was the last time that Jesus and his disciples shared a meal together before he was arrested and crucified. We're not going to talk about the Last Supper tonight. This morning, I guess I should say. But after the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is essentially an olive grove that is sitting on a hill overlooking the Temple Mount and the old city of Jerusalem. It is beautiful. It is an absolutely stunning view. On the screen behind me is a picture of Gethsemane where Jesus was arrested. I took this photo when I was on one of my trips to Israel while I was in seminary. And a fascinating fact about the olive tree is that although the tree we see above the ground ages and dies, the roots, the root systems 
can live an extremely long time. The same roots can repeatedly regenerate and grow new trees. You actually see that in the photo behind me. You see the old tree dying out and the new shoots coming through it. The olive trees that you see in this photo are the same plants that were alive and in those spaces when Jesus was in that garden and arrested. He may have reached out and touched one of these trees as he was talking with his disciples. He may have just kind of leaned up on it while they were chat, you know, chewing the fat. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 50, tell us what happened that day in Gethsemane with these olive trees present. Now, we're skipping over a portion of what happened, so we're catching up at the tail end. So while Jesus, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Now, here we are looking at a betrayal, plain and simple. Judas had arranged with the guards that he would identify Jesus with a kiss. And this kiss has been read into over the last 2,000 years immensely. Ulterior motives were read into it, rubbing salt in the wound. I'm going to betray him, so I'm also going to kiss him. Whole other meetings and ulterior motives, like I mentioned, were, were read into this. We have to be careful when we're reading Scripture not to read into it a meaning that was not there. And this kiss is a good place to point one of these examples out. A kiss was actually the normal and customary way that a student would greet their rabbi in those days. Any disciple that went out on errands and came back would have greeted Jesus with a kiss. So, with that in mind, I actually wonder if Judas planned on kissing him by, to identify him as a way to avoid suspicion. Nobody would think twice. I don't know. Yet, once identified, the guards arrested Jesus. His disciples fled, and Peter trailed along behind the group as they took Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest, for his trial. Now, we're going to skip over the trial and all that and pick back up with Peter after Jesus had already been arrested and taken to Caiaphas. Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75 tells the rest of the story. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. One of the other Gospels actually says he's around a uh, fire, so perhaps it was cold and he was trying to keep warm. I don't know. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway. So he actually left that group and went elsewhere. Where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, that fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. 
And immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is another story of betrayal, plain and simple. In an earlier passage we did not look at, Jesus did predict that Peter would deny knowing him that very night before the sun came up and the rooster crowed three times. Peter swore he would not do it, absolutely was adamant. Yet, here we are, and he did do it. And when he realized that he had failed by doing exactly what he swore he wouldn't, I can imagine his face register the shock. And Mark 14.72 says that Peter broke down and wept. He was beside himself with grief. Have you ever disappointed someone so badly that it brought you to the point of tears? Now Judas, likewise, realized how wrong his actions had been. This is a part of the story of Judas that we often don't talk about. He had betrayed Jesus, yes. But it was not too late for Judas to have a change of heart. Matthew 27, 3 through 5, tells us this account. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Like Peter, Judas was seized with remorse and regret. Unlike Peter, he took his own life. Why the difference? What does this show us? Well, the first point I believe that Scripture shows us through these two stories is that God cares most about our hearts. God's ways are not our ways. We all are imperfect human beings. We all say and do things that are not in character with who we wish to be. We snap at those we love. We say things we later regret. God cares about our hearts. Motivation and intent make a difference. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Peter loved Jesus. Peter immediately regretted his denials of knowing Jesus. He had genuine remorse over what he had done. He failed, but he failed as a result of being an imperfect human being. His heart was in the right place. Judas, likewise, also had remorse for what he has done. However, there is a very, very important difference here that we can see if we peek under the hood. Now, anytime you do a translation of one language to the other, and those of you that know two languages know this, the purpose of translating is not to translate the literal word for word, it's to convey the message. If I wanted a 
person who spoke Chinese to relax, and I said, don't have a cow. And someone translated it as, giving, don't give birth to a bovine. That would not convey the message, right? Okay, well on the flip side of that, in English, we have words that have multiple meanings. Your, your, and your. Love, right? I love my friends. I love my fiance. I love my family. There are other meanings of love, depending on where you go on the web. It's the same word, you get it? Okay. Well, in Greek, each Greek word has a very specific meaning. So when we are talking about love, for example, there are multiple Greek words that we translate as saying love. But each of those Greek words has a specific meaning. And we identify the context, we identify the meaning by the context in our language. In Greek, you use the specific word you mean. So in this passage that we looked at with Judas, where it says that he had regret and remorse. The specific word used actually indicates not a sorrow for sin that leads to a change of mind and action, but a regret at being caught. The Bible does not say that Judas regretted in his heart what he did. It says he regretted getting caught red-handed. Why, why is important to God? And when we seek to draw a lesson from the stories of Peter and Judas, we need to look by starting to look at their hearts, just as God did. God's ways are not our ways. And no matter the failure, his grace and his forgiveness are absolute and perfect and complete. God looked at Peter's heart, not his actions. And God does the same for us. Going back to the story that I shared with you earlier, I messed up when I asked the assistant about that stipend. There was a much better way that I should have approached that situation. My motivation, however, was truly an honest attempt to respect the senior minister's time. God looks at our hearts. Motivation and intent make a difference. So God cares most about our hearts. The second thing I think these scriptures show us is that a failure is something we do, not what we are. Failing does not make you a failure. Do not fall into the trap of identifying your value by internalizing a mistake or an error. Failing only means that you did not succeed at something, one thing among a number of things that you have done, do, will, do, attempted during your lifetime. It doesn't matter how many you stack up. You are loved and cherished by God. Now, Sean Acor is a happiness researcher and wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage. I want to stop right there. I think the fact he's a happiness researcher is hilarious. I mean, hey, Sean, what do you do for a living? Oh, I research happiness. <laughs> Have you had a bad day? Well, no, why would I? I research happiness. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Um, so this book he wrote, I highly recommend it. It's called The Happiness Advantage. It is one of the most impactful books that I have read in the last several years. And so much so that I purchased copies of it for Christmas gifts. It's a great book and very easy to read. 
And in it, he explains, among other things, that we have control over how we respond to our failures. We can respond positively or we can internalize them. He writes, I could focus on the one failure in front of me or spend my brain's resources processing the two new doors of opportunity that have opened. One reality leads to paralysis, the other to positive change. Peter failed. He was not a failure. Now let's return to his story. This time we're going to skip more time. We're going to skip over Jesus' crucifixion, him laying in the grave, his resurrection. We're going to pick up when he is back with the disciples after a meal, and he decides to address Peter's rejections head on. John 21, 15 through 17 has the account. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, what does this story mean? Peter had a vital role to play in the world, and God was nowhere near to finish with him. Warren Wearsby, who is one of my favorite biblical scholars, writes, Since Peter had denied the Lord publicly, it was important for there to be a public restoration. Since Peter had denied his Lord three times, Jesus asked him three personal questions. He also encouraged him by giving a threefold commission that restored Peter to his ministry. Peter had failed. He was not a failure. God was absolutely not finished with him. Have you failed? You are not a failure. God is not done with you either. God cares most about our hearts. A failure is something we do, not what we are. God has plans for you. Failing is unfortunately a part of life, but can we harness failure for growth? Morahai Yoshiba, who founded the Japanese martial art of Aikido, has famously said, failure is the key to success. Each mistake teaches us something. To grow, we need to change the lens through which we view failure. Now, I mentioned that story that I told you about myself I have not shared anywhere before. There is something therapeutic about sharing it and also realizing that this sermon speaks to me as well. There is something healing about this message with that issue that I had. That's the only way I shared it today. We need to change the lens through which we view failure. And if we can do so, we can move on and learn from it. Now, behind me, you're going to see a photo go up that I identify with a lot. I love this photo. Um, as a business owner and an entrepreneur, this is the way my life feels a lot of the times. Now, and I decided to put this up <laughs> because even though a lot of us aren't entrepreneurs, I think we can all identify with this, right? 
The challenges of failures are actually opportunities for us to grow and learn. An unpressed orange will never yield orange juice. Now, we're going to take a moment and watch a commercial that I love. Uh, now, in it, there are a number of failures and a number of things that go wrong. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Oh, no. Are you okay, Mike? Yeah, I've got a pretty big fender bender here. Don't worry. State Farm's got you covered. <sighs> That's great to hear. Robin, what's going on? <laughs> are you sure you're okay? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. We're going to get you a tow truck, Mike. Thank you. Go with the one that's here to help life go right. State Farm. I think that's hilarious. So <laughs> my cop's a brother, so perhaps that's why I just love the cops in the end. Um, now in that video, a lot went wrong with the people in it. A fender bender, right? Fender bender, right? <laughs> A helium truck overturned in a tunnel. There were other crashes. Let's not even talk about the cops. But rather than focusing on everything that went wrong, we focus on how funny the situation is, how much it made us laugh. We look at it through a different lens. Let's change our lens when we look at our lives. And rather than seeing only our failures, let's focus on the fact that God has plans for us. He is not finished with us. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Peter could have internalized his failure. Instead, God restored Peter to his ministry. He was shown grace. He found a new core of strength in his faith. He went on to become an immensely important leader of the Christian faith and spread Jesus' message of love and forgiveness to the world. He had experienced those things for himself. As I mentioned earlier, several of the letters he wrote later in his life are books in our New Testament today. Peter identified with failing. It didn't define him. Instead, it allowed him to appreciate God's grace all that much more. His failure was not the end of the story. It was an opportunity for God's grace to shine through and shape Peter into the person God wanted him to be. And for that, Peter was grateful for the rest of his life. Just like the olive trees that we saw in the garden earlier, we may try and bear fruit above the ground. It may look like our efforts withered and died, but our roots, our God-given identities, never change. Those failures don't define us. And like our roots, he, like those roots, he is with us as we continue to grow. God cares most about our hearts. A failure is something we do, not what we are. And God has plans for you. God has wonderful plans for you. Will you join him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death and resurrection. Thank you for seeing our hearts and for caring more about our hearts than the failures that we've done and those that we will do. 
Thank you that we aren't defined by our failures and that you aren't finished with us yet. Please help us to see your grace and to develop the desire to join you in your plans for us. Amen.